can stir our hearts through music. In the first service this morning, we sang a song, Near to the Heart of God, and that just stirred my heart. And then, oh my goodness, He is the God of revival. The darkest nights, He brings light to it. Well, I guess I'm the only one that got anything out of that, but... And it's not the steroid, I can promise you that, it's the truth of who God is and what He is doing. If you have your Bibles, open with me please to Nehemiah 9. We're going to begin today with Nehemiah 9, 38. We're going to also be in Nehemiah 8, 9, 10, and 12. But welcome to week 15 of our renovation series, walking through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We only have two weeks left after today. But just a little recap, Ezra and Nehemiah are basically books about God keeping his people and God keeping his promises. They are books about building, building the temple, building the walls, but ultimately seeing a people rebuilt. And this morning we're going to look at the people of Israel who now will enter into a covenant with each other and with God. And Nehemiah 9.38 is the key verse there, and I want to give you a quick recap that will lead us there. So years before this is ever written, you had the people of Jerusalem in Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem, and this great, beautiful city was surrounded by this huge, thought to be unpenetrable wall. Because of their unfaithfulness to God, they were attacked, the temple was destroyed, the walls around Jerusalem were broken down, the people of God the people of Jerusalem were taken into exile into a foreign land, separated from their land, separated from each other. Their whole lives were turned upside down because of their disobedience to God. This is the drama that's unfolding in the Old Testament. Even though there were prophets of God who told the people, judgment is coming because of your sin. Turn from your sin. And even after this, there were prophets of God who said, listen, God will bring you back. God will bring you back to Jerusalem. And praise be to God, he, he did both. He took them away and he brought them back. Brought them into Jerusalem. And once they came back, to Jerusalem, the first thing they did was rebuild the temple. That's what the book of Ezra is about. Then we come to the book of Nehemiah, and we see the people rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the city. So the first seven chapters are about the walls being rebuilt. And they are rebuilt in 52 days. So remember, Nehemiah prayed and fasted for three months. The walls were rebuilt in 52 days. Yet when we get to the end of Nehemiah 7, the walls have been rebuilt, but the book continues. It doesn't stop at Nehemiah 7. So the question becomes, why? And the answer is because God's goal wasn't just to stop at rebuilt walls. God's goal was to rebuild his people. That was the goal of God. So in Nehemiah 8, all the way to Nehemiah 13, God does just that. You have a rebuilt temple. You have rebuilt walls. Now God is rebuilding the people. And in that process, we come to Nehemiah 9.38, where the people of God enter into a covenant with each other before God. That's about their relationship with God. And when it comes to covenants, maybe you haven't heard a lot about it, but as you look through Scripture, you see different points at which God entered into covenant with different individuals. God entered into a covenant with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, 
with David. God also, even in the Old Testament, gave the promise of a new covenant that we are under. But it's, it's foundational. It's foundational for understanding the Old Testament, which Old Testament literally means covenant, the Old Covenant. I love the words of Sinclair Ferguson who says this, and just listen to these words. He says, God is a covenant-making, covenant-remembering, covenant-keeping God. If you have never thought of him in these terms, then you have not yet begun to think about him in the way he wants you to. God's word describes those covenants proclaiming him to be a covenanting God. In a sense, the Bible is the book of his covenant. We even call it that, the old and new covenants or testaments. So this was how God related to his people in the Old Testament, and it sets the stage for the beauty that's going to be revealed in the new covenant that we are now under because of Jesus. So in the New Testament, the picture is clear. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We have the new covenant, we have the, the new testament, and there will never be a need for a newer one. So the new covenant will never become old. Praise be to God. There will never be a need for another one. Yet this morning, I want us to see an old covenant people, so people under the law, coming together in covenant as they are being rebuilt as the people of God. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We're going to read just one verse Standing up, we're going to read a lot of verses once you sit down. But we're going to read Nehemiah 9, 38 together. And then just kind of walk through and see what this meant for them and really what it means for us. So you see on the screen, you see it before you, verse 38, because of all this. So let me just pause for a second. Because of all what? Because of all that they had read in the Word of God. Because of the prayer they had, basically when they recapped from their beginning history as a people to their very, that very moment of what God had done. Because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we declare today, God, that you are a covenant-making, covenant-remembering, covenant-keeping God. And Lord, if covenants were up to us, they would not last. They would not stand a chance. Yet, God, you are the one who keeps covenant. And we thank you that you keep covenant with us through the new covenant, through salvation, through your son, Jesus. Lord, just stir our hearts today with the truths that we need to see, even from an old covenant people, even from them entering into a covenant, God, we can see beauty and we can be challenged in some big and, and heavy ways, God, that we pray that you do that today, but that you would also encourage us as your people to speak, O oh God, for we are listening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, and you may be seated. So as God's people, redeemed by the blood of Christ, we need something for which to live. And let me just say this, living for ourselves is no longer an option. If you're a child of God, living for yourself, to please yourself, is no longer an option. We are no longer living to please ourselves. In fact, we are called by Christ to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, follow Jesus. But when we think back to Israel, they had returned from exile. The Lord had not yet initiated the new covenant that he had promised to do through Jeremiah. So Jesus had not yet come, had not yet died. They had not yet had that. So these returners made a covenant under the old covenant to return back to God and return back to keeping the old covenant, the Old Testament. Let me just say this quickly. God does not teach us to be a people of legalism. 
meaning that we do things in order to, to earn salvation. So this is not a covenant of legalism here. This is God's people entering into a covenant because they have been mercifully redeemed and brought back, and now they are desiring, at this point, a new yet really an old relationship. They want the old relationship back with God that their fathers, forefathers had experienced. They wanted it back. So after the word of God is read, that was Nehemiah 8, after repentance and confession is done, that's Nehemiah 9, the people now enter into a covenant with one another. And there's not a perfect parallel between them and us, meaning between those under the old covenant and those under the new covenant, but there are four interesting parallels that I want to show you. And I hope today, I, I know this, they will encourage us today, but they're also going to challenge us today. And we need to be challenged. We need to be challenged today by the Word of God. So I want you to see four amazing truths, four parallels even in our lives. So as they renewed the covenant, so these are our people that renewed the covenant, number one, as a people who desired the Word of God. So they renewed the covenant as a people who desired the Word of God. So take a left from your Bibles, back one chapter, and look at Nehemiah chapter 8. Some of these verses will be on the screen, some of them will not, but I want us to remember where the rebuilding of the people started. This is a passage that Robert took us through two weeks ago, and this is one of the most incredible pictures in all of Scripture as to the importance of God's Word among God's people. So see where this whole thing started, and just imagine the scene. You'll see it on the screen. I'm going to read through it as it's written there. Verses 1 through 3 of Nehemiah 8 says, And all the people gathered, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, and he read from it in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. These were a people who were literally hungering for the word of God. And I, I thank God for your hunger for his word, that you have a desire to hear the word of God. You have a desire to obey the word of God, even when it's hard. And what we have in Nehemiah 8 is a people who have been away from the law. They've been away from the reading of the law, and now they're hungry to hear it. And why are they hungry to hear it? Because this word is life. This word is powerful. This word is gold. In fact, there's a beautiful paragraph found in the introduction of every Bible produced by the Gideons International that reads this. I'm just going to read it. It might be a little long, but just follow with me here. The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable, unchanging. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. Christ is its grand subject, our good is its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. 
It is given to you in life. It will be opened at the judgment and it will be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility. It rewards the greatest labor and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. And brothers and sisters, let me say this. This word before us, this amazing book, hear this, please hear this, will not bear its fruit to lazy people. This book will only bear its fruit, hear this, to hungry people. To people who are hungering for God's word. Yet the people, they're not just hungering for the word of God, they're responding to the word of God. Ezra and the scribes are reading the law. He he brings the law, he reads it before the people. Beside him, to his right, are a bunch of men whose names we can't pronounce But just listen to what's happening. Get this in your mind. Listen to verses 5 through 6 of of Nehemiah 8. It says this, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people. And as he opened it all, the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Don't don't miss what's happening. Can you imagine masses of people are gathered together? Ezra steps up and all he does is open the book. There's no music playing in the background. They haven't just played your favorite new song and how it has moved. You know, all he does is he opens the book and everyone rises to their feet. And then they lift their heads. They start shouting, amen. Amen. And then they begin to bow down with their faces to the ground. And let me say this, and please hear this, based on what we just saw. This book has the power to raise us up, and it has the power to bring us low. This book has the power to raise us up, to put us to our feet. But it also has the power to bring us to our faces. And oh to God, oh to God, that God will continue to give us an awe for his word. May your word, O God, raise us up as obedient servants, but may your word also continue to bring us low like humble children. But it all begins with a desire for the word, which begs the question, do you have a desire for the living, breathing, powerful word of God? Do you hunger and thirst for God's word? Oh, that you will. Oh, that you do. So they renewed the covenant as a people who desired the word of God. But then secondly, they renewed the covenant as a people who celebrated the grace of God. As a people who celebrated God's grace. So now look at Nehemiah 9. So you get to Nehemiah 9 and what's happening is as the word of God is read, the people began to confess and repent of their sins. Just listen to the first three verses here. It says this, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth with earth on their heads. So basically they are in distress because of their sin. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. 
And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of the day, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. So don't miss this. They're seeing, they're hearing, they're listening attentively to the law of God. They're having their sin exposed. And that's why they're on their faces. They're confessing their sin. You get midway through verse 5. In verse 5, you've got all the Israelites and Ezra. And it says they stand up, they praise the Lord God who is from everlasting to everlasting. So thus begins midway through verse 5 all the way through verse 37, one giant prayer. It's the longest prayer recorded in the Bible. But I want you to see what happens here. I want you to see where it begins. Let's begin where this prayer begins. At the very end of verse 5, this prayer begins with these words. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Don't miss that. Hear that again. God's name, his praise is exalted. His glorious name exalted above all blessing and all praise. What a beautiful, grand picture of our glorious God. But let me say this. No matter how well you respond to God, no matter how great your singing is when you come together here, no matter how great my preaching is, okay, let's, let's, let's be honest, no matter how adequate my preaching is and how great your response to that adequate preaching might be, no matter how much we do in the presence of God, hear this, it will never be enough. And what I mean by that is this. The Bible just tells us here that God is exalted above our blessing and above our praise. Meaning this, you might have the best day of praise ever in your life. And you were like, man, I nailed that praise today. I gave God my all. And here's what the Bible says. God is even greater than your greatest day of praise. He is greater than your greatest blessing of him. That's why we will have to spend eternity with God. Because it will take an eternity, and hear this, we will still never come to the bottom of who God is. Just, just a little hint for all of us today. Heaven will never be boring. Because we'll never get to the bottom of who God is. We'll never get to the bottom of how great and majestic He is. Our praise will never rise to the height of who God is. His blessing, His praise, what it all deserves. Yet here they are, they're exalting the God who is the God who has done so much for them. And what they do is they look back in this prayer of all the ways that God had met them throughout their rebellious history. And if you remember last week, grace is all over this chapter. And this is where we remember that we are, we are a people who have been saved by grace. It's what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us. We're saved by grace through faith. It's not a matter of our own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that we can't boast. If you are saved, you are not saved by your effort. You're saved by the effort of Jesus. If you are saved, you're not saved by what you have done. You're saved because of what Jesus did for you. You're not saved by your effort. The only thing your effort brought you was damnation, condemnation, and a ticket to hell. So you might say, well, no, I, I had a part in this whole salvation. Yes, you did all the sinning, and Jesus does all the saving. That's your part. You, you did the sinning that required salvation, that required Jesus to do what he did. But follow with me here. This isn't just Ephesians 2, 8, 9, by grace we're saved. This is also Nehemiah 9, 7. Look at it on the screen. It says, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out. 
I don't know if you know this, that's a picture of grace. It doesn't say Abraham did this tryout before the Lord and the Lord loved what he saw in Abraham. So the Lord selected Abraham to be on his team. That's not what it says. No, it was only by the grace of God. And it doesn't change when it gets to us. Our only hope of salvation is the grace of God. It's the only hope of salvation. If you think you have to bring anything to it, you don't understand salvation. If you think that you have done anything to earn salvation, you don't understand salvation. Yet salvation doesn't just stop at the grace of God. It continues through the sustaining work of God. So God sustains us in his grace. Look at verses 17 through 21. You see on the screen, it says this. You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. That's verse 17. Verse 19, the pillar of cloud did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night. Then verses uh, 20 21, you gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth. You gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them. And then listen to verse 31. It says this, Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Grace, 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 grace all over this chapter. All of that leads to verse 38 where the people say this, Because of all of that, because of all the grace that you have done, because all the grace, God, that you have given to us, now we enter into this covenant, into this agreement. This, this covenant is done under the context of grace. They're saying this, the only people, only reason, excuse me, that we are a people, God, is because of your grace towards us. And it's at this point that I get to say this, that the First Baptist Church of Ocean Way, this local body of believers, we are a community that has been sustained by the grace of God. In our history, we have had some amazing highs and we have had some difficult lows. And the only reason there is still a First Baptist Church of Ocean Way today is because of the grace of Almighty God. It's not because of any one leader or a multitude of leaders. It's not because of one decision or decisions that have been made. It's not because of any group of people and their service. Now, all of those things are important, and I praise God for those. But the only reason, brothers and sisters, that we are about to celebrate our 95th anniversary as a church is because of the grace of our God. And just so you know, just a little heads-up announcement on September 9th, that's a Saturday afternoon. We are going to gather here together as a faith family, and we are going to celebrate 95 years of God's grace and faithfulness over, over this faith family. We're going to eat too much. We're going to celebrate too loud, and we are going to have more fun than we should, giving glory to God for His grace and His goodness towards us for 95 years. And here's the beautiful thing. Most things that are 95 years are thinking about death, and yet we still have life in front of us. And so because of his grace, we look at the things, amen, we still have life. And because of all that God has called us to, in the future, we say this, God, only by your grace. But your grace has brought us this far, and God, your grace will take us home. Your grace will take us there, whatever it is. And before we move on, let me share with you 
a powerful insert from a book called Capture by Grace, written by David Jeremiah. He gives us this picture of the difference between mercy and grace. And he says this, Mercy is God withholding the punishment we rightly deserve. Grace is God not only withholding that punishment, but offering the most precious of gifts instead. So let me explain that before I move on here. So mercy is us not getting what we deserve. Grace is God giving to us what we could never deserve. Then he says this, Mercy withholds the knife from the heart of Isaac. Grace provides a ram in the thicket. Mercy runs to forgive the prodigal son. Grace throws a party with every extravagance. Mercy bandages the wounds of the man beaten by the robbers. Grace covers the cost of his full recovery. Mercy hears the cry of the thief on the cross. Grace promises paradise that very day. Mercy pays the penalty for our sin at the cross. Grace substitutes the righteousness of Christ for our wickedness. And here's my favorite. Mercy closes the door to hell. Grace opens the door to heaven. And in this, mercy withholds what we have earned, eternal death. Grace gives us what we could never earn, eternal life. Take in the awesome generous extravagance of God that goes beyond his mercy to where he extends grace to us. Are we still amazed by his grace? Oh, we should be. Stay amazed by his grace. Then number three, they renewed the covenant as a people who promoted obedience to God. So they renewed the covenant as a people who promoted obedience to God. So now flip over to Nehemiah 10. We're going to move through this very quickly, even though there's so much here that we could probably sit here and stay for a while, but we're going to kind of go quickly. So when you get to Nehemiah 10, verse 28, you begin to see the specifics of their covenant, the specifics of the agreement that they made to one another. They are all now joining together saying, hey, there will be a curse upon us as we take this oath to follow the law of God given to Moses. And we want to carefully obey these commands, the regulations, these decrees, And what happens the rest of the chapter is you see specifics of this covenant that they are now entering into as the people of God. And where we we see, like, we like them. So I'm going to show you this. We like them are a people called to separation. We're called to be separate from this world. Just listen to verses 28 through 31. And you'll see on the screen, you can make it out. It says, the people who have separated themselves from peoples of the lands to the law of God enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the people of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath. So the people here declare their separation to God in two ways. First of all, they say that we will not allow our sons or daughters to marry foreigners. Now follow with me here. This is not about racial pride at its best, saying we're not going to ever associate with anyone of any other race. That, that's not it. Read Matthew 1. Read the genealogy of Jesus, and what you'll see in the genealogy of Jesus are foreigners that God allowed by his grace to enter in. 
This is not exclusivism either. This is marriage to foreigners was the chief avenue by which idols and godlessness made its way into Israel. So the Israelites, just like us, would say, no, 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 we're going to let them come in, we're going to marry them, we're going to change them, and they're going to worship our gods. And before long, they were worshiping idols, and they had turned away from God. Think about Solomon, who was called at one time the wisest man on the face of the earth, and yet he gave his heart to foreign, idolatrous women, and they turned his heart away from God. And it led to the division of the kingdom that he had. Let me say this. I'm going to say this kind of powerfully, but I'm also going to say it hopefully gracefully. Do you want to severely hinder your ability to serve the Lord and please Him? If you want to hinder your ability to marry the wrong person, give your heart to the wrong person. Now, please hear what I'm saying, and don't hear what I'm not saying. Yeah, youth, you need to hear that, because here's the whole deal of, I'm going to, I'm going to, and, and please hear this, because I, Morgan and Madison has heard this so many times, and ladies, guys, you need to hear this as well. When I ask my daughters, and I'm going to ask Malachi one day, hey, tell me about that guy, does, or that, that girl, do they know the Lord? Are they believe in God? No, no, Satan believes in God. Demons believe in God. So don't be bringing a demon home, because I will cast that sucker out, <laughs> just, just so you know. Jared's still here. But if not, I'd have cast that sucker out. It's not just enough to say I believe in God. No, ask questions. What do you believe? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you walk with him? Is he your life? If he's not, hit the road. Hit the road. Here's the, the beautiful thing here. Listen, I don't care how strong you think you are. If you get in a relationship with a person going the opposite direction, they will take you in the opposite direction. Brothers and sisters, hook your life to one who's going the same direction that you are. That's heading the same direction towards Jesus. Because if not, they will take you to a direction you don't want to go. But let me also say this. Maybe you're here today and you're, me saying that has brought shame, has brought things in your past. If that's happening right now, here, here's some awesome things. Go back to number two. The grace of God covers that. There are those who married those individuals, and by the grace of God, those individuals have come to know Jesus. We do praise God for his grace in that. And then others married, and things fell apart, and yet, hear this, you are not outside of God's grace for you. You are not outside of God's grace, so hear that. But then, secondly, part of this separation was also they committed themselves to the Sabbath. The Sabbath was not just about them taking the day off. It was about them being separate from all the other nations, them setting themselves apart, saying, you'll keep working. We're trusting the Lord. The Lord will provide for us. It was God's way of saying, this is my people. They trust in me, but they're separate from everyone else. And this calling doesn't stop at the Old Testament. It continues today, but here's the, here's the difficulty for us. There is a balancing act for you and me today, a balancing act between us loving the world meaning loving the world with an agape love of God and falling in love with the world. And there's a very thin line there that we can love the world and we can want the world to come to know the Lord, and before we know it, we have fallen in love with the world. And we have fallen in love with the ways of this world. Listen, we are called to a separation and yet to a love. But we're also, the second part here is we're called to sacrifice. Look at the, the beginning of verse 32. It says this, and you'll see on the screen at the very end, it says, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give. 
Here, these are people that are choosing. They're not just choosing God. They're choosing a lifestyle. A lifestyle centered and focused on their creator rather than themselves. And the commitment they're, is, they're making here is a call to great personal and communal sacrifice, which is what commitment really is. But this part of the covenant involved the people of God giving up the fruits of their labor, some of the fruits of their labor, giving financially, giving of their possessions to see worship continue. And as the community of faith, they know that they're responsible for serving God, giving in this way. And, and just think with me, and this might be uncomfortable for just a little bit, but follow with me here. For many people, the number one thought when you think about giving is you think about percentage. What never comes into your mind is joy, cheerfulness, or sacrifice. And here, here's, again, it's going to get uncomfortable, but in many parts of our life, we often sacrifice more to keep up with the world than we do to honor God. Let me say it again. We often sacrifice more to keep up with the world than we sacrifice to honor God. And the cost, listen, the cost of getting all the stuff of this world, let me tell you what it cost us. It cost us a life of generosity. It cost us a life by which we are able to meet needs of other people. Now, I think this is the enduring power and comfort of what Randy Alcorn calls the treasure principle. He says this, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead of you. And here's what he says. If we give instead of keep, if we invest in the eternal instead of the temporal, we store up treasures in heaven that will not that will never stop paying dividends. Whatever we store up on earth will be left behind when we leave. Whatever treasure we store up in heaven will be waiting for us when we arrive. And when, when we commit to that kind of generosity, we find that there is greater joy both now and then. Meaning, there is eternal joy in temporary sacrifices. There's eternal joy in temporary sacrifices that we make out of obedience to our God. But then number four, this is when it gets really, really good. They renewed the covenant as a people who demonstrated the glory of God. So now flip over to Nehemiah 12. Now this is where we're going to be next week. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because it's going to be really, really good next week looking at the praise of God's people. But here's what we see. We are a people who have been raised up for the glory of God. We're not just a community for community's sake. We are a community for the sake of making much of Him. So fast forward to Nehemiah 12. What happens after all of this confession, prayer, praise, the walls have been rebuilt they decide we're going to have a celebration. And having this celebration, they begin to think about all the ways in which the nations around them had ridiculed them. If you remember, the nations around them, when they began to do the work of rebuilding the walls, the nations around them basically said, you guys are an incompetent people, and an incompetent people mean that you have an incompetent God. You can't do what you're claiming to do. In fact, one person even said this, the walls they built, when one single fox walks across the wall, the wall will crumble. That's how incompetent they are. And everybody laughed. So what they do in Nehemiah 12 is they say, we're going to have a celebration, and somebody has this bright idea. Hey, how about all of us get up and walk around the wall? All of us. And somebody says, great, I'll bring a fox just for the fun of it. Now, it doesn't say that, but I can imagine there'd be somebody that would do it. 
So what, what they do, the entire community of faith climbs on the walls. They start marching around the walls. They're singing. And listen to this picture. You'll see on the screen, in verse 31, it says this. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south. Then verse 38, the other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north. And I followed them with half of the people on the wall. Now verse 43 says this. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Not just joy, but great joy and a glorious God. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem, it says this, could be heard far away. So this was not just loud praise, this was obnoxious praise. And this was them being obnoxious. They were basically saying all of these communities around us said we were incompetent. And you know what? They were right. We are incompetent. We can't do anything on our own. If it was left to us, there'd be nothing there. So we're not here celebrating us. We're here celebrating the glory of what God can do in and through us. Let me say this today. And you've heard this story before, but there were several years ago where I met with a pastor of a, a church in our in our city, I'll say that. Growing, growing church, and we met, and he was asking me things that we were doing and all the ways that we're serving our community and our world, and he was like, well, what benefit do you get from that? And I was like, we get the benefit of obeying God and seeing him at work. And he said this, he said, we have a, a method in our church, we actually say it many, many times, if we can't get the credit for it and people don't know that we did it, then we don't do it. And I said, well, we have the opposite in that if we can get credit for it, I probably don't want to do it. Like, if it's something that we can get the credit for on our own that we don't need God to do, I don't want the credit. I want to do things in, in and through this, his church, that only God can get the credit for. That way by which when we step out on faith and we go, God, we don't know what's going to happen next, but we're believing that you called us here, and we believe that if you called us here, you're going to provide, and you're going to show yourself, so therefore we take the next step, and guess what God does? He meets us in the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and we get to the very end, we go, there's no way in the world we got here apart from the grace of God by which it gives all glory to God. That's the kind of church I want to be. I don't want to be a church that says, we're going to do everything, and we're going to make sure everyone knows how great and awesome we are. If that's the goal of the church, they're missing the point. The goal of any church is not to show a community how great we are. It's to show a community how great God is. Because, listen, we can show people how great we are, and we can't save anyone. But we have to show them how great our God is and who he can save, which is anyone and everyone. Oh, the beauty of who he is. So what is happening here is God is doing something by which God is taking a people who could do nothing on their own and he's showing what he can do in and through them. And that's so good because it's also what God's doing in us. He's taking us and showing what he wants to do in and through our lives. And this must not just stop with us. For yes, we're a community of faith who's been called out, united by grace to make his glory known in our culture around us, we make God's glory known in Ocean Way, in Jacksonville, in our nation, to all the nations that God sends us to. And we want them, as we go as a church, whether it be local and global, we want the world around us to say this, what a great God they serve. 
Therefore, brothers and sisters, that's worth us raising the bar of expectation. What I mean by that is this. What we have done in the church over the last probably 100 years, but especially quickly in the last 10 years, is we've taken the bar of service and obedience to God, and we have lowered it so far to the ground that anybody can step over it. And I read a lot of books, and what books tell you today is this. If you want to grow a church, and here's what you do. You bring a people in. You basically give them no expectation whatsoever. Say, we'll serve you. You have nothing by which to do. You don't have to serve. You don't have to give. You don't have to do anything. We'll do it all for you. And guess what? People are flooding into those churches. The problem is that's not our calling as believers. Our calling as believers is not to have someone serve. Well, it is to have someone serve us, but it's Jesus and Jesus serves us as we serve others. And so the beauty is this. Listen, we want to raise the bar, believing as the bar is raised, God will get the glory for it. Let me lay a few questions before us today. When was the last time that someone stood in awe of the God that you served? When was the last time someone stood in awe of the God that you served? When was the last time that someone was speechless about what God had done in your life because you couldn't keep your mouth shut about what God had done? When was the last time that you told someone outside of this church what God had done or was doing, is doing in your life? Listen, if you are, if you're in this church, I think, I think this, if you were to ask the average church or Christian sitting in church, if you were to ask them, what does it mean to be a member of your church? You'd get a whole lot of different answers. Some you'd get probably a lot of blank stares. Maybe somebody would say, well, I get to vote as if that's something big, or I get to serve, or two or three times a year I get to bring a casserole. Now, we love your casseroles, don't get me wrong, but it's got to be more than that, right? It's got to be more than that to, to be a, a member of the church, whether it be locally or globally. What if we lived in, a, in such a way that our lives shared the same marks? In a way, they do. Don't all of our lives share the marks of of sin in our life and what sin does to us. But our lives also share the mark of, of God's grace and his goodness and his forgiveness and his restoring of what God is able to do. Let me end today with the words of, of J.C. Ryle. And he says this. He says, May it be said of the church, whether it be locally or globally, they are born again of the Spirit. They all possess repentance towards God faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ, and holiness of life and conversion. They all hate sin, and they all love Jesus. They are led by one spirit. They build upon one foundation. They all draw their religion from one single book. That is the Bible. And they are joined to one great center. That is Jesus Christ. They all even now can say with one heart, Hallelujah, and they can all respond with one heart and voice, Amen and Amen. Brothers and sisters, I can tell you this. This isn't the steroids talking. This is the goodness of God speaking in this moment. Our God is worth our hallelujahs, and He is worth our amens and our amens. The question I have for you this morning is getting back, are we a people who desire the Word of God? Are we a people who celebrate the grace of God? Have you ever experienced God's grace and salvation? If you have, it may today be the day of that. But are you a person who still experiences and celebrates his grace? Remember what Jesus said in the Gospels. Jesus said the person who has been forgiven much does what? Loves much. 
if you have been forgiven much, you will love God much. But he says this, but those who see themselves as being forgiven little, they love very little. And brothers and sisters, we are a room filled with people who have been forgiven, hear this, much. We've been forgiven much. Therefore, we have much to love when it comes to God and to others. Are we a people who promote obedience? That we want to be separate yet love our world. But we want to do it all not for our glory. We want to do it all for God's glory. I never want to draw people to me. I never, I could care less if people ever know the name of Micah Strickland or ever know the name of First Baptist Church of Ocean Way if they know the name of Jesus. If they come and know him and you're thinking, I know some of you are thinking, well, that's just stupid. Brothers and sisters, I guarantee there will come a day where somebody stands before God. They won't be able to say, well, I, I knew Jordan Chambers. I knew Micah Strickland. I knew First Baptist Ocean Way. But you didn't know Jesus? Because on that day, that's, that's all that's going to matter. That's all that will matter. Oh, that we will live our lives for his glory. I'm going to ask you to stand as we enter this time of invitation and consecration as I call the band forward. And let us pray. And we're entering into a time of response, but also a time of gratitude. So, Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you have done. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for imperfect obedience that we can have to you. And yet, Lord, you've made a way that even our imperfect obedience can bring you glory. God, we thank you for that. You use imperfect people to bring glory to yourself, and that's the only reason we have hope. Lord, finish this time. In Jesus' name, amen.